just by way of mentioning, um, it's not the only book I've used, but the book that I've used probably mostly for my primary source for our study today is a book called Jesus Christ Our Lord by John Walvoord. It's been printed for many, many years. Um, I have a few other books that I borrowed from Pastor Rodney that I've also um, referenced from time to time. One of them has been especially helpful, a book by a man named Stephen Wellam. But this book here is very readable, uh, very uh, sound doctrinally, and if you're looking for something to add to a library or whatever, probably you have to find, I don't know if they have still, it's still in print or whether you'd have to find it out of print, but it's this book here, Jesus Christ Our Lord by John Walbert. Had that with me a couple weeks and kept uh, forgetting to mention it. Uh, turn with me just for a moment to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I was asked last week after class was over about the translation of verse 2 in 1 John chapter 4. And um, since I didn't allow for the question to be asked during class, I felt like I should at least uh, answer it in class. So this is one of the verses we read last week. Um, in reference to the fact that Christ truly did come in the flesh, really was, did really have a, a human body. And uh, so it was one of the verses that I read. So obviously that verse then raised a question in one of our students' minds. And so I um, researched it and looked it up and followed through with it this past week. So I'll re be begin reading with verse 1 of 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So actually this, this passage is a passage used to give us one criteria to find out whether the prophets that were speaking or they would elude their message in the source of their message back to a spirit, whether those were biblical uh, prophets, whether they were biblical uh, spirits or not. Uh, and so the, the text that's given, test that's given here is whether Jesus Christ is fle was flesh during his earthly ministry. And the question I was raised was, I'm reading from the New King James, and it, and it reads that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And so I was asked the question, should it be a better translation if it if we read, it is come in the flesh. And I will just go on to say, without belaboring the, the matter, um, in the original language, um, there are a couple, a few tenses in the original language. It's harder to distinguish those in the English language because of the way we speak, and we're not always speaking very cor uh, correctly, grammatically, but in the original language, it's much clearer and in this particular verse, the original language, the tense that's used here is the perfect tense, which you've heard referenced from our pulpit on numerous occasions. It's a tense that indicates something that's been completed with continuing results. And so what John was expressing in this, this epistle as he wrote it was he was saying, Jesus Christ, it's hard to bring all the dynamics of some of this translation into our English language without having a lot more words than we, we already have. 
but he's actually saying that the original reader would have actually read this and said and understood that John was saying, Jesus Christ is, is, has already come. It's an accomplished fact in the past because it was in the past as far as John is writing in, 90, in 95 AD and, ha, and is still to this day, the results of that are still existent. And so the better translation really is has come, though it doesn't say it all in that. We may not catch that all that in our English reading, but uh, it doesn't have to be is come to be accurate or to be doctrinally sound. Has come is an adequate translation. So last week we uh, spent quite a bit of time um, discovering from the Scripture, reinforcing our already current beliefs from the Scripture that Jesus Christ uh, not only had a body, uh, in a, a r- real body like we're ex- uh, existing in right now, this very moment, but he also had a human nature. And then we added to our previous studies about that Jesus Christ is God, that he is deity, and we reminded ourselves of that by looking at the attributes that Christ had, the activities he's involved in, and his authority. And so we looked very carefully last week at the fact that what we were studying was the fact that God, that Jesus Christ is the God-man. He's a theanthropic being. And this is all founded in the Word of God. So then we have this man. We have God. And how do those two natures, how do they relate? How, how did God bring those together? And so... Um, the answer is, and it's not an answer I can take you to a specific Bible verse to show you. I can't, you know, some verses are just like, I mean, just really clear. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Every spirit that is of God will confess that Jesus Christ has come, from the, has come in the flesh. Some verses are just really, really clear, very, very explicit. Sometimes we just have to take a sort of a compilation of all the verses we can put together and arrive at a conclusion. Uh, and so sometimes the study of theology is a study of faith. It's believing that God will enable us to understand the truth that he wants us and needs us to know. And that is what we really arrive at when we're studying about Jesus Christ being the God-man. And the fact that this coming to get not, not putting the two natures together, okay, that's not correct, but this idea of there being two natures with one personal expression uh, is what we refer to, and that is, as I said last week, fancy word, hypostatic union, but it is simply that personal union, okay? So that person, Jesus Christ, has always existed, and he is immutable, one of the things that, we've already, that we believe about him. And so when he took upon himself the human nature and the human flesh, he did that without changing his divine nature, without changing his divine person. Now, it's like some of the other theological things we talk about, things like about the Trinity and stuff, it just stretches our brain, and it stretches and stretches and stretches, and it's still like, oh, I don't still I don't have my brain wrapped around this. I just have to accept the fact that Jesus Christ is presented as the God-man, and that happens through a personal union, through that immutable, eternal person could do that without affecting or changing himself. So, um, I'm going to want to say it, but by the way, the notes I gave you today are the notes that would have been from last week as well as the new notes for today. So, I did that 
did catch up with myself in doing that. So I wrote down at the top of my notes as I was studying this week after writing the notes for typing that this was accomplished, this idea of Jesus Christ being the God-man was accomplished only through the wisdom and power of God. It's nothing that anybody else could have put together or came up with as an idea or a concept. It is only what it is because of who God is, okay? And so it was absolutely necessary for him to be an adequate sacrifice and so forth, but it is only possible because of who God is. And so if you're following down on your notes, I think it's in the back page of your uh, first sheet of notes. Um, so this union, as I said, takes place through the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal second person, the Godhead, the, the, uh, the Son. Some things, if people do not understand this particular teaching correctly, some of the things they'll end up with is denying the deity or they, or they somehow have some kind of diminished deity in who Jesus Christ is. So they... Um, I mean, for instance, Jehovah's Witnesses believe he's the last of the, the created chain between where God is and before we get to man. Um, so he has a, we have a diminished deity. He is a God, but not God like the Jehovah God is and so forth. Um, you can have denial of, the, of true humanity. Now, that, this is not a really so much of an issue currently as it was an issue in the early church. Uh, as I said, First John is part of First John's purpose is really to, to refute the idea that Jesus Christ only appeared to be a man. He just sort of had the appearance of a man, but he wasn't really man. Uh, and so that was more an older uh, di- uh, heresy or order, order, uh, doctrinal error. Uh, sometimes some will suggest that the two natures somehow were blended together. Um, now, I mentioned last week about the fact that we were made in the, that man was made in the image and likeness of God, and that presented a sort of what I would refer to as a compatibility between the human nature and, and the fact of becoming the God-man sometime later. In, 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 but don't take that as that the two natures were compatible. I'm just saying that the human nature was made in the likeness of God, so there is a sense of that existing. And then... Um, there are some that would suggest the possibility of a mixed personality or a, or a um, multiple personality, I should say. Uh, there is never a reference anywhere in the scripture where Jesus Christ is referred to by a plural pronoun or any plurality of any sense or t- kind. He is always referred to simply by a single singular pl- pronoun, he, uh, whatever. So there's no sense ever that the Bible ever would suggest that he is a multiple uh, per- of personalities. Now again, you know, it, and I don't think I have to f- deal with this here in any length, but it's, you know, if you're basing what you believe on the Word of God, or if you're basing your belief on what human people can come up with as a conclusion, or, or a suggestion, or an additional thought, and so we need to keep, make sure we, what we believe is what is founded in the Word of God. So uh, a few comments I made here that I've written down for you. I don't know that I'm going to read them all to you, but uh, on down through it. Uh, we do not believe that this has changed or limited Jesus Christ as the eternal portion of the Godhead. Uh, God obviously sees this matter as excluded from what we would consider change. Obviously something d- is different about Jesus Christ after being conceived in the womb of Mary uh, in the fact that he took upon himself flesh and human nature but it didn't change his eternal person 
or his eternal divine nature. There it is. We're back into that area of acceptance, taking something by faith and understanding what we can understand about it, and then just accepting what else we know about it. And so that also is true. And so there's also some conclusions down here. Um, Jesus Christ has always existed as the second person of the Godhead and has chosen to serve as a son and be called the son of God. And just as a note, that does not ever, ever indicate his inferiority to the other persons of the Godhead. We've talked about that in the s- several different settings. He is not inferior to the other persons of the Godhead. And the eternal person, without any change to his essence or existence or any threat to his person, chose to reside in a human body. Um, I'll also, I don't know if in this class, but talked about the sense of what we refer to as, as the persons of the Godhead and their residency. Um, for instance, in our time, in our era, age, uh, the Holy Spirit is resident on earth in the life of believers. During Christ's earthly ministry, God was resident on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, in the Old Testament, God was resident on earth in the, in the, the um, presentation, manifestation of the Shekinah glory. So the three persons of Godhead are always omnipresent. They're always everywhere at the same time in the same way, but they do take up residence as it fits their will, as they fit the inter- eternal will of God. So that's all I have to add right now to this matter of the um, Jesus Christ being the God-man, being the theanthropic being. And so um, if you have questions, I guess I'll be glad to answer them in a, on a one-to-one setting on that, on that. But we will move on to the, in, in our notes and move on to the next subject. Um, one of the things that we cannot avoid as we study this matter of Christology is what I would refer to as repeated passages. Uh, you know, we'll look at a passage and you, you can say, well, we've already looked at the passage three times in our study. Well, yes, we have looked at it for three times in our study, sometimes for a little bit different emphasis when we went to that passage, sometimes for a very similar emphasis when we went to that passage. But yes, I will acknowledge to you that some of these passages we, you've seen over and over and over again. I will only say to you that it only has to appear in Scripture one time to be true, okay? It doesn't have to appear in Scripture multiple times to be true, you can, and you can glean more than one fact or one, more than one principle from a passage of Scripture. They're not limited in the scope of their teaching. So uh, I'm not making apologies. I'm just saying, explaining to you why we end up with going back to some of the same passages over and over again. So the next uh, thought I had was to look at what I refer to as Christ's ministry to us as believers. Um, that I picked out three words to represent that ministry. That does, mean, that does not mean I have, am presenting to you an exhaustive uh, view of Christ's ministry to us or for us as believers. Just simply chose three of the more larger terms and, and maybe more popular terms, which will allow us then to go, go down from that. You can take that part of that study and sort of take it down step by step till it gets closer and closer and more and more involved in your life. Okay, so that's what we're trying to do now is just look at these uh, things that Christ does for us uh, and in us and through us. And the first, of course, is that Jesus Christ is our prophet. And again, I just remind you that the primary role of a prophet 
is to take what God gave that prophet and, and share it with people. So the message came from God to the prophet, and the prophet shares it with people. Sometimes that, in quotes, prophecy was something that needed to be dealt with immediately. There was no waiting. It wasn't going to happen in 50 years or 100 years or 500 years. It was happening right that very moment. So when we speak of a prophet or a prophecy, we often think of things that are in the, in the future, things that are someplace out in the future. And that is uh, certainly true. But don't limit it just to things that are in the future because many times a prophet was delivering a message to the people of Israel that was to be responded to immediately. They were to hear that message, they were to repent, and they were to follow God and do whatever God wanted them to do. So be careful how you limit the word prophet or prophecy because we have sort of limited it in our way we use it, and it's not the same as the way the Bible would use it in every circumstance. So saying all that, let's look at some verses. I need somebody to read for me, please. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. John, somebody read John chapter 1, 1 through 3. Mike? And um, we'll, I guess we'll start with that for right now. Um, so so uh, John, Hebrews chapter 1, please. Okay, so God had sent various prophets down through the years. Um, some, of the, some of their names we know. I believe there were probably prophets that were uh, prophesying in a local setting, in a local time that we do not have names for in the Old Testament. But in many ways, God continued to deliver that message to the people as they needed to hear the message. But the final authority and the final spokesman as represented in the book of Hebrews is, in fact, Jesus Christ. He is that final spokesman uh, for, from God. Mike? Okay. And my only point in using this passage again, <laughs> again for the numerous times we've used it, is this title that John, through the Spirit of God, gives to Christ in this particular passage, and that is the, the term word, W-O-R-D, because that for them was a very inclusive word. It indicated this one was a communicator, was a source of truth, was the presentation of truth, uh, and so that is how uh, we, that passage really is speaking of him being a spokesperson being a representation, representative of God in that particular setting. Uh, most of you have all heard the word that's be, that the Greek word behind the word, uh, the term word is logos. It's the word that we use so many places in our times. It, it's the word that comes over into us as logic, zoology, whatever it might be that is that word that's brought over. So. Uh, zoology is a study of life, biology is a study of life, I know there's variation of that, or, uh, but so that ology is that logos word, and it's used like, we use it very much like it was intended to be used, a very comprehensive uh, statement. One of the things that sets Christ aside as a, as a prophet, now this was not so much 
This is not contrasted with other prophets, but contrasted with the teachers of his day. Okay, so I'm not contrasting with this with other prophets. I'm contrasting this with the teachers of his day. And that is he spoke with authority. And if somebody would read Matthew 7, 28 and 29, please. Brenda, and somebody please read Luke 4, 32. Judy, thank you, ma'am. Okay, Brenda, please read Matthew 7, 28 and 29. Okay, taught as one with authority and not as the scribes. Um, the Jewish people were um, great at being willing to suggest all kinds of alternative uh, meanings or, or the thought behind a, a passage of Scripture, but they were very reluctant to be dogmatic about it. And so when you would go to discuss some biblical principle, you would be, have like 10 different scholars who had 10 different opinions about it, and nobody was making a definitive statement. Now, in some ways that still exists today, but there are those that are not afraid to say this is truth, regardless of what anybody else believes, this is biblical truth. And so, but the scribes were very hesitant to do that. They didn't like to be involved in that, uh, be put on the spot and held to something. So they would just give opinions about, about things. Judy, please. Okay, and they were astonished at his teaching because his word was with authority. And again, that had power behind it. It had, it had a significance of somebody could put their trust in it, put their faith in it. It wasn't just opinion. It was Christ literally just saying, this is what the scripture means. As he would open whatever scripture passage he was referring to, he taught with authority. And, uh, and he put, took that Scripture, as, you, as we know from reading the Scripture and re- reading what he, how he encountered people, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, he would make statements to them that just shocked them, just rocked their, their existence because he just said, this is it, okay? You're wrong and this is it. And so that was the teaching that he did with authority. So here on your, on your paper, I've just given three basic um, examples of um, the teaching of Jesus. We're going to... Uh, also have a week on the teaching of Jesus, part of a week at least, and so we'll look at some of this. Matthew 5 through 7 sort of set aside as a particular passage of Christ's teachings, um, the Sermon on the Mount, so that is sort of a very, very early in his ministry, very specific in his ministry. Um, I believe it's a, a lot of teaching that is very sound and very useful for us, I think it was being offered to those, that crowd and saying, if I become your king right now, these are the principles we're going to live under. These are the kind of ways you're going to act if I was to be your king right now. Now, that doesn't stop us from needing to use that passage of Scripture for our good and for our benefit also, but that, I think, is a, like a setting of when it was to be used for. John 14 through 16 is another significant passage passages of, of Christ's teachings um, as he prepares his disciples for his departure. Uh, it's, it's like all, it's a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of instruction, but it's like, it's like us, you know, uh, when you leave, the only thing I, example, you leave with your babysitter 
with your children and, and the, as you're going out the door, you're giving your babysitter, you know, uh, 500 word synopsis of, of three things you want your babysitter to do. And Christ sort of does that with the disciples at the last minute. He's just giving them all this information and included in that context, of course, that the Holy Spirit was going to remind them and teach them of the things that he was also already telling them. So it wasn't like they had to, you know, be quizzed on it in that, in that particular sense. And then the other obviously very clear or uh, obvious example of Christ's teachings is, is the parables, uh, which we find in, through, throughout the Gospels. Um, and again, <clears throat> the, the parables, um, everybody takes a little, has a little different slant on this one, I guess, but I think it is, in fact, Christ taking earthly illustrations to teach biblical truth. Uh, he just was a master illustrator. Uh, he, could, he, he knew what he wanted to teach, and he just would t- tell, take something that they were, could, could see right that moment with their eyes or that they were very familiar with and taught them something. The word parable itself, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but the word parable itself means to cast down alongside. And so it was like, here's this biblical truth I want you to understand, and here's a parable that will help you understand it. And I'm going to put the parable right down alongside the biblical truth that will help you understand it. And that was the idea of a parable, was to have something put down alongside, side by side to line up. And then, of course, um, as I was writing it up, the the object lessons that he left us with, and, and specific I'm referring to the miracles that he performed, on earth, they were, and every one of them was a teaching opportunity. Every one of them was a display of his wisdom, of his power, of his care, of his compassion. And so he gave, left us with multiple object lessons within his teaching in addition to that. And in um, this next, the last thing I have there under Christ being the prophet is my speculation, okay? But I just, I, I just always stop and when I'm thinking about this and think about all those personal encounters that Christ and the disciples had, how many times they sat around the meal, how many times they were walking down the road and just, just talked and just visited and, and how many questions the disciples asked that Christ answered for them. Yes, we see that so many times the disciples didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand until later what was happening. They didn't understand what Christ meant until later in, in, in their lives in, 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 or in the ministry of Christ. But I just, I, I guess I just wonder about the, the richness. I mean, I think about um, t- the times that I've sat and, you know, just, and I hope, hope it's been true for you too, but just sat and talked with people about, about the Scripture or about a particular item in Scripture. And sometimes it ends up being like, you know, sort of a, almost a debate type thing, a setting when you're talking about things, but just how rich and how rewarding that was to have those kind of discussions and have that kind of involvement with somebody. And to think about having that kind of involvement with Christ himself is just amazing to me just to even think about it. And so, so I leave you with the idea that he is our prophet and those disciples had the opportunity to just have those personal, private lessons uh, as they talked to Christ and listened to Christ and questioned Christ along the way. So, um, so Jesus Christ, one of the things he has ministered to us in, this is sort of a past ministry, um, except for the active involvement still of the Word of God that's still alive, but as, as prophet. 
Also, he ministers to us as priest. Uh, again, this is just the opposite. The prophet takes what God gives them and gives it to the people. The priest takes what people give to them and take it to God. Uh, this is very clearly illustrated in the person of Jesus Christ in, in the idea of him sitting at the throne of grace, him taking our needs and, and being our mediator and our, and our intercessor. And so he is truly our priest. And um, priest offered sacrifice. Christ offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice. So there's several passages in the book of Hebrews here that we have. Um, I'm watching the clock also. and may not, may not read them all right now. But if first somebody would read 1 Timothy 2.5. And if you've already read and want to read again, that's fine. I'm not getting a lot of hands behind me or in front of me, I guess. John, if you read 1 Timothy 2.5. Let me get a couple more verses here. Um, again, back to Hebrews chapter 1. Anybody? Hebrews chapter 1, uh, Beverly, verse, verse 3, and Beverly, since you're there, how about reading chapter 2, verses 16 through 18 also? And Amos, would you read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16? We'll stop there and read those passages and, and then move on. So, John, please, First Timothy 2, 5. There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Okay. And Wow. I think all the things that are in that, in that verse, the man Christ Jesus, so many things included in that particular, particular verse. Uh, Beverly Hebrews 1.3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, being all things by the power of his word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. Okay, provided purification for sins something the priests were not able to accomplish. They could only offer the blood of animals uh, to accomplish an atonement, but Christ uh, accomplished redemption, reconciliation, propitiation for us in his sacrifice. In chapter 2, verse 16 through 18, please. Okay, and finally, Amos, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, please. Okay. A great high priest. Not just a high priest, but a great high priest. Uh, the high priest has, has always existed under Israel's economy uh, from the time of, you know, in the, in the wilderness. But here, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews chooses to add to that high, high priest the adjective great high priest. And in that passage also talks about, of course, him being able to be tempted as we were because of that human nature, and again, that human nature that Christ took on him was a sinless human nature. It was, not, it was like Adam before the fall, and, he, and Christ could not sin because he was the eternal second person of Godhead, and that's why the, that nature could not sin. Uh, I'm going to move down to Hebrews chapter 7, and um, 
I'm just going to pick one verse out of the pet verses you have on your paper, verse 25, Hebrews 7, 25, please. Judy, thank you. Ever lives to make intercession for them. One of the, my very, very favorite verses out of all this, all the scripture is to know every moment of every day that he's there to intercede for me. And so it's just a marvelous truth and a wonderful reality that we, that we rest in. And let me just see what else. Um, let's read, somebody read please, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 12 and verse 28. John? It's all right. Take your time. 11 and 12. Yes, sir. Yes, please. So Christ was offered to bear the sins of many. Once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Okay. So to wrap that up, the Christ as our priest offered himself as sacrifice, not just those passages, but this thought, this section of the notes, and obviously ever lives to make intercession for us. He's the one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And finally, a ministry that Christ has for us is the ministry as king. Now, sort of probably depending, again, on your perspective and your background, how much you think about him as king uh, may or may not rise to the occasion a lot. If you want to substitute the word Lord in there for, for king, that's, that's fine. I just chose that word king um, in the way here. Um, he's a sovereign leader. He's the authority and ability to govern. Um, and then you'll see there, if you're looking at the notes, you have the word sh- shepherd there under the word king. That's not a misprint. That's not a, a stutter or a typographical error. But early on in early history, kings were linked to a shepherding ministry or a shepherding responsibility. We so often think of think kings negatively. We think of kings as some authoritarian uh, despot that just is, you know, cutting people's heads off and throwing people in jail and doing whatever, you know, anybody they don't like they get rid of. But kings originally were leaders. Kings originally were those that did just what a shepherd does, and they, that, that is that they provided for and protected their people, okay? So the word shepherd, the word king and the word shepherd were often... Uh, mixed. In fact, sometimes when you read about some of the earlier kings, you'll read about, you'll, it'll actually be, re, be reading about a shepherd-king. And so that was something that's there. So I just say that to, to remind us that when we're talking about Christ as king, we're talking about uh, the continuation of his being a shepherd, but in this more of a, a sense of doing, making decisions and, and being a position, in a position of authority. Um, 
Isaiah 9, 6 refers to him as the, as the mighty God, as the everlasting king. Um, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, confessing Christ as Lord. And then just a couple other passages. Um, let's look, have someone read Zechariah 9, 9, please. Zechariah 9, 9. I know it's in the Old Testament. It's, John, you're going to look that one up also? Okay, so that one, that word obviously talks about the king and so forth, but also talks about how lowly he is. So it talks about, again, the meekness of a king and the humility of a king. Um, someone read Revelation, oh boy, it's a, um, Revelation 19, 15 through 16, please. Uh, actually, we're going to read 11 through 16. John, John the Stone? Yes, please. And the Philippians chapter 2 passage obviously talks about the time when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And follows the passage, of course, of his humiliation when he took upon himself the form of a man, the form of a servant. So, so Christ's ministry to us, again, just shows three of these broader topics, and then each of those topics can be taken down further. Just would remind you that do you need direction in life? Then Christ has given us direction in life. As, is pro- as a prophet, the teaching that we have recorded in the Word of God certainly gives us direction for life. certainly tells us how to handle circumstances, how to t- uh, live our life, how to be situated. Do you need someone to mediate or intercede for you? you ever feel just absolutely undone, hopeless, uh, helpless, uh, no place to go? Obviously, Christ is priest provides that ministry for us. And the concerns of this life can certainly get a hold of us and attempt to control us. Um, But we need to remember that Christ is King, that He is Lord. He is Lord today, just as He'll be Lord in the future. He is just that same Lord. He's not present, but His Lordship does not change. His authority and ability to govern does not change. And so... um, I mean, I will tell you that when I, look at, when I look at what's happening around us with how far our country has changed in just two years, it's, it's just almost unbelievable. Um, but we have to trust Christ. We have to trust God. Circumstances are not getting any better. 
but he is king and he is Lord. And we have to rest in, in his authority and in his sovereignty. So uh, next week we're going to study Philippians chapter 2. We're going to study the kenosis passage. And so we'll do that together next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We've looked at a lot of passages. We thank you that Christ is that final spokesman that he taught us through his teaching that's recorded here in the Word of God. We thank you for all that we can learn about him and, and about our need to trust him and believe in him. We thank you that truly he offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins and that he ever lives to make intercession for us and help us to trust him as the Lord of our lives and believe that he obviously is in control of all circumstances no matter how out of control they seem to be. In Jesus' name, amen.